All right, thanks guys for leading us in song tonight. It's good to see everybody. Y'all doing all right this evening? Good crowd for a Sunday night. I'm glad that you're here. I uh, hope that you have a handout. Does everybody have a handout for tonight or does anybody need one? Need one, you can raise your hand. There's some around somewhere here that we can get to you. All right, good deal. We're going to be looking tonight at the covenants in Genesis. We've uh, worked our way through the book of Genesis, actually reading it aloud uh, in our assembly here on Sunday night over, I guess, three or four Sunday nights. But uh, I wanted to kind of introduce us a little bit to some to the covenants in the Old Testament and particularly spend some time tonight in the book of Genesis looking at the covenants there. By the way, uh, the last Sunday night we were together, the missionaries Peter and Yana Harris, I want to say Jana Harris, but it's Yana Harris, and then their son Zion were here and uh, they did not have any postcards at that time. But they sent us some. If you'd like to grab one of these, they're back there on the back table. And there's ways in which you can be praying for them listed there on the back. So they're back there on the welcome table. <clears throat> All right. So I uh, found our book of, to the book of Genesis. I don't have a specific passage that we're going to start off with to uh, read. So I want to go ahead and pray and then we'll get into our study. So let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, as we come together tonight, I thank you for your word that we have to open up and to read. Lord, I'm not sufficient for this task of teaching on the the covenants in Genesis or doing anything, Lord, in this ministry which you've called me to. But Lord, we know that you are sufficient and I thank you for your sufficiency. I ask you to provide for me tonight as I seek to um, teach on this topic. And I pray you'll give us understanding into your word. I ask this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for our sins, was buried and rose again, and the one to whom even the book of Genesis is ultimately pointing us to. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so on your handout there, first of all, you're going to see the word covenant. I've got a little definition for you. Um, It's uh, The Hebrew word is berit, and there's probably some markings that go along with that, but just put that up there. I threw this together this afternoon, so um, <clears throat> there's probably some mistakes and things like that in there, but for the most part, the content, I hope, is correct. Covenant means alliance, pledge. It means between men, an agreement or a treaty. In uh, Genesis 14, verse 13, it is also translated allied there, so allied. Uh, the next thing there I'd point out, uh, the way that we might recognize covenant today is in the marriage covenant between a man and a woman. And you see in the quotations there that the one says, I do, and the other says, I do. It's a binding agreement between the two, something that they make before God and before <clears throat> man. Ideally, that's the way it would be done. And um, so they they say that they will uphold certain um, things that they have stated. Uh, I will do what um, has been said. And then and when you think about covenants, covenants can be a conditional or unconditional covenant, or it's unilateral or bilateral. In other words, <clears throat> conditional and unconditional, uh, God sometimes says in the covenant agreement that he's going to do it. God's going to do this regardless of what the other person uh, does. God is going to accomplish this promise. 
And there are other examples, like in the Mosaic Covenant, where it is conditional or it's bilateral. In other words, in order for the blessings to come to the people, they must obey. And if they do not obey, then there will be um, cursings that come from that. All right, so that's just a little introduction to covenants. Um, the, the next point is um, humanic covenants. All right, now, I made this up completely. You will not find this in any theology books. So please do not get in a discussion with anyone theologically and say, yes, but what about the humanic covenants of Genesis? All right, they'll look at you like, bro, what kind of church are you going to? And you say, yeah, my pastor taught us about that. And then they'll say, you need to... Get another pastor. But humanic covenants. I totally made this up because I know that there are covenants in Genesis between men. It's uh, man and man making the covenant. So I want to give you some examples of those, even though we're not going to turn to them and look at them. In chapter 21, 27 through and 32, you have Abimelech and Abraham making a covenant there. And he... A, a, uh, Abimelech wanted Abraham to swear to him because he knew that God was with Abraham and he wanted Abraham to promise to him that he would uh, be good to him, I guess. But he, So he made an oath. And then the next one is Abimelech and Isaac, something similar taking place there as Abimelech again saw that God was with Isaac. And I believe that passage tells us that they both made an oath to one another. So they swore that they would do something uh, toward one another, and they made a covenant with each other about that. Um, that Isaac would do them no harm, that Isaac would do no harm to uh, to Abimelech. All right, and then the next one is Laban and Jacob, which is one you might be familiar with. So this treaty was made, this covenant was made between the two, even though they were relatives to one another, uh, Laban sought this covenant and they made a covenant together. And that covenant actually uh, served as a witness between the two of them, the Bible tells us there in chapter 31. So humanic covenants <clears throat> um, occur between men, between people in the book of Genesis. And uh, so that's similar to what we might see today in covenants or agreements that are made between parties or between individuals. All right, so the next point that we're going to go to is Edemic covenants. Brother Jacob and I were talking this morning. He asked, do you think that's even really a covenant there? And I, I really go back and forth on whether you, we should call this a covenant or not. But after looking at it this afternoon, I decided just to, to go with that, uh, the Edemic covenant. And why? First of all, this, we see blessing. In chapter 1, verses 22 and 28, you see in God creating, we're in Genesis 1, 22 and 28, you see that God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas the, and let the birds multiply on the earth. So God uh, blessed the sea creatures and every living thing that moves. He gave his blessings upon them, everything that's in the water and everything that is in the sky, the winged creatures. And then down in verse 28 of Genesis 1, you see that God blesses um, man, male and female, and he says to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, 
over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So you see a blessing, but then you also see in chapter 3 a cursing that occurs. After um, the uh, after Adam and Eve had eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God curses creation. First of all, the cursing comes in verse 14 upon the serpent. And um, in verse 15, we find the proto-gospel, the first mention of the gospel. That doesn't mean that you're going to read the word gospel there. But this is the first place in the Bible where it's indicated that there is going to be one who will defeat the serpent who will win the victory on our behalf for the seed of woman. So it says there, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. In the same blow, the the heel of the woman's seed was bruised, but in that blow... The head of the serpent was bruised or crushed. That happened on the cross. When Jesus died, the seed of the one Christ, yes, he died on that cross. And he died for us, but he rose again. He was bruised, his heel. But that work on the cross crushed the serpent. He was then defeated uh, in that blow. So that's the first mention of the gospel, the Proto-gospel is how that is typically, what that is typically called. And then in verse 17, uh, we see here to Adam. It says, Then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. And then he goes on to explain the curse upon the ground at that time. So I, I would call this in the uh, this an Adamic covenant a covenant because we see blessing and we see cursing, but there's one other reason why I would call it that. And over at chapter 6, verse 18, if you want to turn over there, it's it seems like when we get here to chapter 6 with Noah that God is... Um, saying there here that I right, know I'm about to destroy the earth and I'm going to establish my covenant with you. And it's it comes across in verse 18 as though I right, know I'm going to establish it with you, whereas before it was with Adam and his descendants. But Noah, after this flood, I'm going to establish it with you. So I take that as saying, previously, God had a covenant with Noah and his descendants. And we sort of see it in the blessing and the cursing in that early chapter. At least I present that to you, those early chapters. So that brings us to the next point, the Noahic covenant. You see why I said humanic? Got it now? Adamic, uh, Noahic. And then we got more of them, more ice icks coming up. All right, so um, and the the Noahic covenant is next here. In chapter six, verse eighteen. Let's read that. It says, "But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall go into the ark, 
you and you, your sons, your wife and your sons' wives with you and of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Okay. So the first thing here in chapter six, verse 18, in this covenant with Noah, we're going to see life and fruitfulness because, um, that's going to be the result of what we're going to see here in chapter 8. Life and fruitfulness. Now let's flip over to chapter 8. Chapter 8, verse 20. Chapter 8, verse 20. Sherry, can you hand me one of those handouts? Thank you. All right, so in chapter 8, verse 20... We see here a covenant with creation, with Noah and his descendants. God makes a covenant with creation, with Noah, and with Noah's descendants. And what we're going to see here in chapter 9 is that seven times in the verses I have listed there for you, the word covenant is used. That's um, actually... Chapter 6 was the first time it was used, and now it's used multiple times in chapter 9 in relation to Noah. That's why I wouldn't wouldn't get wrapped around the axle at all if we just said the first covenant was really with Noah, because we see that word used quite often here. All right, so chapter 8, let's start reading at verse 20, if you'd please follow along in your copy of God's Word. Uh, Genesis Chapter 8, verse 20. This is at the end of the flood. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled a soothing aroma. Then the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake, although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done. Now, you might want to mark, if you keep up with things like this, you might want to mark chapter 6, verse 5, to go along with verse 21 of chapter 8. Because this is the same critique that God gave of creation of mankind before the flood. That the imagination of their thought, of of their uh, a man's heart was evil from you, from his youth or continually. And then in verse 22, he says, While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, and day and night shall not cease. All right, so God has established this pattern of the seasons, and he lays that out right here in verse 22, and we are thankfully beginning to enjoy fall, right? Some fall weather. Isn't that refreshing? Now we go to verse chapter 9, verse 1. So God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. You see that? It goes back to chapter 6, verse 18. Life and fruitfulness. Through Noah now, the same promises or the same command is given that was given to Adam and to Eve. To be fruitful and to multiply. It's repeated here. To Noah. In verse 2, this is something new. 
And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the air and on all that move on the earth and on all the fish of the sea. They are given into your hand. So at this point, animals began to be afraid of human beings. It began right here. Prior to this, apparently that was not a thing. But now it is. That's why you can't just walk out in the woods and grab a deer and uh, take it home with you. All right, it goes running off. But it isn't an interesting thing that a raccoon can walk right up to a deer and the, the deer won't think too much about it. It'll just keep going about its business. But if a human being comes walking up to that deer, then that deer is most likely going to be gone unless it's an unusual situation. And usually anytime it's an exception, that just establishes the rule of how things really work. So um, you may wonder, why are you talking about deer? Well, (laughs) deer season's around the corner, so it's on my mind. All right, so verse 3. It says, Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I have given you all things, even as the green herbs. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Surely, of your for your life blood, I will demand a reckoning. From the hand of every beast, I will require it. And from the hand of man, from the hand of every man's brother, I will require the life of man. And then verse 6, whoever sheds man's blood... By man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made man. So even though the fall has occurred, man is still created in the image of God. We still exist as image bearers of God, as we see here in verse 6. Verse 7, And as for you, be fruitful and multiply, bring forth abundantly in the earth, and multiply in it. Now we're going to verse 8. Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, And as for me, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your descendants, and your descendants after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you, of all that go out of the ark, every beast of the earth. Verse 11. Thus I establish my covenant with you, Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant which I make between me and you, and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. I set my rainbow in the cloud, and it shall be For the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. It shall be when I bring a cloud over the earth. That the rainbow shall be seen in the cloud. Verse 15. And I will remember my covenant. Which is between me and you. And every living creature of all flesh. The waters shall never again become a flood. To destroy all flesh. The rainbow shall be in the cloud. And I will look on it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me 
and all flesh that is on the earth. So that brings us to the last point there, 917. The sign of the covenant that God made with Noah is the rainbow. So every time you look up in the sky and see a rainbow or maybe multiple rainbows like we saw the other day in the sky, you can remember that this is a sign that God gave uh, to the Noahic covenant that he would never again flood the earth in the same way that he had done previously. That does not mean that there are not portions of the earth and places where flooding occurs, but God would never destroy the earth with a curse. It's uh, really interesting in verse 16, I'll just point out to you before we move on, that God actually says here that the rainbow shall be in the cloud and I will look on it to remember. God is painting the picture for us here that when that rainbow is in the sky, that God in heaven looks upon that rainbow that is there and he remembers that he made a covenant that he would never flood the earth again. He made an agreement. Now, is this a conditional or unconditional covenant? It's unconditional. God says, this is the way it is. This is what I'm going to do. Okay? All right, let's go to the next one. This is the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant. Uh, Abraham covers a a lot of the book of Genesis, his um, life and then his descendants. And um, we'll just kind of break this down here. First of all, in chapter, and I forgot to underline the word calling there, but 12, 1 through 4, I just uh, labeled this as the calling of Abraham. This is a key chapter. And as I've told you previously, this has this is still being fulfilled. What God promises to Abram here is still working itself out today and it will continue to work itself out until the Lord Jesus Christ returns. All right? This is biblical theology where we see that something God says in Genesis works its way or has a scarlet thread of redemption that goes all the way through the Bible. And when we have a biblical, a sound biblical theology, we are able to see how Genesis and Revelation fit together. And that's really something, as I know you've heard me say before, have that goal in your life, in your reading and studying of the Bible to understand this thing. Whether it's the book of Haggai or whether it's the book of Jude, whether it's the book of Genesis or whether it's the book of Revelation. So study the Bible and read the Bible and listen to the Bible being preached and taught in such a way that you want to know how it all fits together. It is not accomplished overnight. It is accomplished over decades. We are, it is not a sprint. It is a marathon. So we grab hold of the book and we read it. We study it. We pray over it. We seek to learn it because um, we want to know the God in whom we worship and serve. So in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 4, this is a key key passage. Uh, it's the calling of Abraham to get out of your country. You see there in verse 1. And then he makes this promise to him in verse 2. He says, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. 
Verse 4, So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him, and Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Now he had already left Ur of the Chaldeans. He had been called out of there by God. They went and stayed in Haran for a time, and then he left there to go to the land of Canaan. The next thing that we see, there's a promise of descendants and land. A promise of descendants and land. In verse 7 of Genesis 12, he says, Then it says, Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. Pretty simple. You see both of them in there. How old was Abram? 75. So he's getting to be an old man. And um, he's going to get even older than that before he actually has any descendants that are going to fit the bill for this. But he's told here, you're going to have descendants and you're going to have land. Even though by the time he died, he only had one spot of land that he had purchased. And that was the place where Sarah was buried. And then he would be buried there. And then Isaac would be buried there. And then Jacob would be buried there. And maybe Joseph, but I can't remember. Now, uh, promise of descendants and land. Now, that'll take us to chapter 13. And here we see that this is reiterated. In chapter 13, verses 14 through 17, this is after uh, Abram and Lot had went their separate ways. If you'll look over at chapter 13, verse 14, the Bible says, And the Lord said to Abram, after Lot has separated from him, Lift your eyes now and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward. For all the land which you see I will give to you and to your descendants forever. And I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth. So that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants also could be numbered. Arise. How many of you would like to be given this promise from God? Arise. Walk in the land through its length and its width. For I give it to you. Just go walking and everywhere you walk, it's yours. Um, and so we see that God makes this promise. This is all leading up to covenant. The covenant has, the word covenant actually has not been used yet in relation to Abram, but it's coming up. And all of this is just building up to God ratifying that covenant as he is about to do. So we see next in chapter 15, the ratifying of the covenant. Let's turn over there and take a look at this. Chapter 15. Now, if you'll look at verse 6, this is a very key passage here. Chapter 15, verse 6. This is one that carries over into the New Testament. This is one that carries over into the gospel. He, it says there in verse 6 that, And he believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. See, salvation still happens that way. We believe in the Lord. We believe the promises of God through Jesus Christ, through the gospel. And when that occurs, God uh, he credits it, He accounts it to us as righteousness. It comes by faith. This is a key passage and something you should pay attention to as you're kind of working your way through the New Testament, maybe through the Bible. All right, continue on in verse 7. Then 
he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit it. Now, I was supposed to read 14, so let's go there. It says, and also, no, I wasn't. That was back in chapter 13, sorry. Uh, let's see here. Uh, let's pick up in uh, verse, verse 8. Sorry, I'm being an idiot. But verse 8. And he said, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? Uh, He's promised that he's going to inherit all these things. How shall I know that I will inherit it? So he said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him and cut them in two down the middle and placed each piece opposite the other. But he did not cut the birds in two. And when the vultures came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Now, verse 12, when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. Then he said to Abram, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them and they will afflict them 400 years. And also the nation whom they serve, I will judge. Afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. Now, what's he talking about right there? Yep. So if you didn't catch it, Abram is told in chapter 15, verses 13 and 14, that his descendants are going to go to a nation for 400 years, and he's going to actually make them a nation there, and that afterwards God's going to judge that nation, and this, the descendants of Abram are going to actually come out of there with great possessions. And we see that happen in the book of Genesis, I mean, the book of Exodus, chapter 12. They plundered the Egyptians before they left because they simply said, Hey, will you give me your gold? So they gave them all their gold and then they left the nation. It's just as God said it would happen. Verse 15 Now, as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation, they shall return here. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Amorites is referring to most likely here all the people in the Canaan land, those pagan nations. Sometimes in the book of, in the Old Testament, they're just referred to as Amorites. And 400 years are going to pass until their iniquity is complete, until they have maxed out God's long-suffering and patience. And then at that time, God is going to judge them. If anybody ever says to you, well, what about God sending His people into the promised land and killing all of those innocent people? You say they weren't innocent. They had over 400 years to repent and turn to God, and they did not. God is long-suffering and patient, but He does not turn a blind eye to sin. And He brought judgment upon them because of their sin. Verse 17, this is a little bit of a confusing passage, but in verse 17 it says, And it came to pass, when the sun went down and it was dark, that behold, there appeared a smoking oven 
and a burning torch that passed between those pieces. Now, what pieces? Pieces of the animals. And then in verse 18, On the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. And then it continues after that with a bunch of names that I'm not going to read. All right? So, what's this all about? God here in this passage is saying, with those animals being cut apart and uh, laid open on each side, and then God walks between them. Abram does not walk between them. God walks between them. And he appears here as what? A smoking oven and a, born, and a burning torch. What's happening here in this is that God in walking through these pieces, himself doing this, he is saying that if I do not fulfill what I have sworn, let me be like these animals. And that was a way in that day in which, which oaths would be made. You can write down as a cross-reference for this, Jeremiah chapter 34, verses 18 through 22. That's Jeremiah 34, verses 18 through 22. For the sake of time, I better not read it, but do write that down there because <clears throat> something very similar is said in that passage of Scripture. It talks about covenant and... Um, 18 through 22, and their dead bodies shall be for meat for the birds of the heaven and the beasts of the earth. And the idea there is just like Abram was having to shoo away the vultures from those dead animals, the, the idea there is that those who have not upheld their end of the covenant will, will face that judgment, will face that um, disgrace. And God is saying here, hey, if I don't do this, let me be like that. Why a burning torch and a smoking oven? Is that what it said, a smoking oven? There, there's different views on that. I, you know, there's, uh, some have said that this is a sign of God's judgment, that, that God is going to judge Egypt, that God is going to judge the nations. Fire is often associated with God. God is a consuming fire. God judges in fire. And so it, it could be a reference to something like that. It could be a depiction of or showing the holiness of God in, in judgment as well. Uh, one commentator said, The darkness, the smoking oven, the burning torch are a reflection of the fire and darkness that accompany God's presence at the time of the Exodus on Mount Sinai. Another said the furnace of fire symbolized the presence of the living God with whom Abram was being brought into fellowship. It was an awesome symbol which Moses was to encounter at Sinai on a grander scale and one which the people were to associate with God's holiness in Exodus 19. He was not a God who could be trifled with and yet he would go with them in a pillar of cloud and, in a, and of a fire guiding and protecting them. Another said, Then after the sunset, God revealed himself in connection with the image of an oven, a smoking fire pot, and a torch. 
two elements that were connected with sacrificial ritual in the ancient world. These images are part of the burning motif that describes God's zeal and judgment in the world. Fire represents the consuming, cleansing zeal of Yahweh, as well as His unapproachable holiness, which are interrelated. In the darkness, Abram saw nothing else in the vision except these fiery elements that passed between the pieces of the slaughtered animals. Thus, the holy God was zealous to judge the nations and to fulfill His covenantal promises to Israel. He came down and made. The word made here means to cut. So, He made a formal treaty with Abram. Since God could swear by none greater, he swore by himself. In other words, this was a unilateral covenant. So its promises are absolutely sure. Now, does anybody know where the Bible says that God could swear by no other? And he uses this as an example. Can anybody think of where that's found in the New Testament? Actually, brings this up. It's Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13. Where he says that God could swear by no other, so he swore by himself. <clears throat> All right. We got a little ways to go, so let's get busy here. Chapter 17. Um, in chapter 17, you see the uh, word covenant used 12 times. In chapter 17, uh, Abram is becomes Abraham. Instead of being a father of a nation, he will become a father of nations. Uh, Abraham <clears throat> is what that's what that word means, father of nations. And in chapter 17, we also see the sign of the covenant given. He's made this covenant. It's been ratified. He said things leading up to it. He then ratifies it and says, I'm absolutely going to do this because he walked through the animals and the, through the offerings. And then he gives a sign to Abraham. And that sign is the sign of circumcision that's found here in chapter 17. We won't really spend a lot of time here. But do notice here that in this chapter, the word covenant is used 12 times. So it is highly emphasized here. Uh, God appeared to Abram in verse 1. He says, I am almighty God. Walk before me and be blameless. And I will make a covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. In verse 5, no longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. And then he says, I, am, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make, you na make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. So the sign of circumcision is then given. Verse 10, this is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins. And it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. All right, so the sign of circumcision. Chapter 22. Chapter 22, as we wrap this up, 
we see here Abraham's obedience and his seed. What happens in chapter 22? What significant event? Anybody know? Anybody know? Yeah. So Abraham took his son Isaac up to Mount Moriah, which is the same place where the temple would be built, and it's the same place where Jesus would be uh, crucified outside of Jerusalem. Um, so he's obedient to do just what God told him to do, and and we'll go to the end of this chapter and read read the end of it here. Uh, verses 15 through 18. Y'all got it? Y'all still awake? Uh, verse 15, it says, Then the angel of the Lord called to Abram a second time out of heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Note that. He calls him his only son. All right? All right. So, verse 17. Blessing, I will bless you. And multiplying, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. Verse 18. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Now, you notice that I have the word capitalized, the word seed capitalized. In 15 through 18, and it's found in verse 18, in your seed. I'm going to show you why I have that capitalized in just a moment. <clears throat> now, here are uh, many of the places, if not all of them, where there is a promise through Abraham to all the families of the earth. In the last three, beginning at chapter 22, verse 18, in the last three connected with that promise is the promise of blessing the families through the seed of Abraham. All right, this is key. And we will look at Galatians 3, verse 16. If you'll flip over there with me, uh, you'll see why uh, we're saying that. Galatians 3, verse 16, why, we're, why I'm emphasizing this. First of all, <clears throat> Galatians 3, um, we'll pick up at verse 6, if you'd look at that with me very quickly. Just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness, therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, check this out, and the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. Where's that found? Starts in the first place. Where's it found? Genesis chapter chapter 12. And then it goes on and it's reiterated from there. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. Now, we go down to verse 15. Brethren, I speak in the manner of men, though it is only a man's covenant. Yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. Now, to Abraham and his seed. In the New King James, it's capitalized. 
were the promises made. He does not say and to seeds, plural, as of many, but as of one and to your seed who is who. So in these Old Testament references where seed is found relating to Abraham and the families of the earth being blessed through the seed of Abraham, he's saying there in Genesis that Abraham, through Christ, who's going to come from you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And how will they be blessed? They will be blessed ultimately and eternally through the gospel of Jesus Christ, the one who bore their sins, as we saw this morning, the one who died for us. And as Peter would say, he died that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh and made alive in the spirit. Does that make sense to everybody? Seed, the seed of Abraham, Christ came from him. And through the gospel, all the families of the earth are blessed. Now, this is reiterated to his descendants just real quickly. Isaac, you can see those cross those references there in the book of Genesis where Isaac's given this same promise. And then you see Jacob. The promises are given to him as well that God is going to bless with descendants, with land. And I think the word seed might even be found in some of those as well. You see 2814 is up there on that first line. So it's promised there through Jacob. uh, And it's also promised through Isaac. You see in chapter 26, verse 4. So the word seed would be found in both of those. But it comes through Abraham. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? You got a question about something? All right, that's all I've got for y'all tonight. I hope that that is uh, helpful uh, to you. And maybe we'll continue to look at some covenants as uh, time goes along here. Let's pray together. Uh, Lord, I do thank you for the gospel. And it's not, a, not plan B. This is plan A for you. And Lord, you've been you've been fulfilling this since uh, since the fall. And uh, Father, I, and before that, Lord, I know that Jesus was the Lamb of God slain before the foundations of the world. And God, you're carrying out your plan of redemption. We thank you for that. Thank you that we can read it and see it in the Bible and see how you've promised things and you you are fulfilling them. And we can rest assured that today. August, October the 8th, 2023, that you, God, are still working to fulfill your word because you said that you would. You swore an oath by yourself. And there's no greater than you. Thank you, Father, for the gospel. I pray for anybody here who has not believed that gospel or anybody listening who's not resting in the, in the hope that they have in Jesus Christ and that they can have in Jesus. I pray tonight that they'll repent and turn to Jesus in faith, trusting Him completely. In Jesus' name, amen.